In the United States, we've all heard of commonly talked about Native American tribes, the Iroquois, the Navajo, the Lakota, the Cherokee. And some of us know the local tribe whose land we live on, the Seminole, the Chinook, the Ojibwe, and so forth. But did you know that a vast majority of native languages spoken by indigenous people in North, Central, and South America are not related to each other whatsoever? Welcome to Not Trivial, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the stories behind the trivia questions you might have heard at the pub. My name is Liz, and I've been a trivia nerd since I was young. My parents and I would play Trivial Pursuit often. We still do. I've hosted pub trivia, I've played pub trivia, and I'm a collector of random history, language, and world culture facts. One of my greatest passions is sharing what I've collected with others. I'm hopeful this podcast makes the trivia questions feel less trivial, and more important to understanding how the past creates the present, and subsequently the future. Let's get started. have some fun today, shall we? (laughs) Hopefully you find linguistics fun. (laughs) In this last episode of the first season of Not Trivial, we start by recognizing the people who first inhabited the Americas. The peopling of the Americas began about 14,000 years ago. There are both DNA and linguistic links between populations in Siberia and the Americas. The theory that hunter-gatherers crossed a land bridge across the Bering Strait does make sense, but it's still unclear how and when and from where exactly people migrated. There are many indigenous peoples, some who are traditionally hunter-gatherers, others who practice agriculture or aquaculture. Many societies have varying degrees of knowledge, engineering, physics, mathematics, astronomy, architecture, medicine, metallurgy. Currently throughout the Americas, there are over 70 million indigenous people living today. Mexico is the country currently with the largest indigenous population, upwards of 20 million. The United States has just under 10 million. Guatemala, Peru, Bolivia, Chile, Colombia, Canada, Brazil, and Ecuador round out the top 10 countries with significant indigenous populations. Several of these countries also recognize the indigenous languages as one of their official languages. Karani has a speaking population of roughly six and a half million and is an official language in Paraguay and Bolivia. Southern Quechua has a speaking population of roughly five million and is an official language in Bolivia and Peru. We'll take a look at some of these languages with a strong modern sense of identity and culture but we'll also look at other languages that have far fewer living speakers and are classified as endangered, like Blackfoot, spoken by only about 30,000 people and classified as definitely endangered, or Alut, spoken by fewer than 100 people and classified as critically endangered. There are so many indigenous languages in the Americas, we won't be able to dig into all of them, but We're definitely gonna get nerdy today and pay our respects to languages that have evolved over thousands of years. 
we start our journey in North America, where there are approximately 300 spoken or formally spoken indigenous languages. There are 29 different language families. The three largest families comprising the most distinct languages are the Nadane, the Algic, and the Uto-Aztecan families. The Nadane family consists of Tlingit, Ayak, and Athabascan languages. Tlingit is a critically endangered language, and it's centered in Southeast Alaska and Western Canada. Initially, Tlingit was translated into Russian using the Cyrillic script because Orthodox church missionaries were in those places at a time when the Russian Empire expanded not only into Alaska, but all the way down the Pacific coast into Northern California. And when the U.S. purchased Alaska in the 1860s, English-speaking missionaries began their own translations of Tlingit using the Latin script. Tlingit is notable for its complex phonological system. So, just to provide a brief overview of phonology, <laughs> there are various sounds or phonemes broken up into categories. There's the alveolar sounds, and that uses the tongue up against the back of the teeth, like the English letter T. There are velar sounds that use the back of the tongue against the soft palate of the mouth, like the English letter K. There are uvular sounds that use the back of the tongue against the uvula, like the English letter G or G. And there are labial sounds that use the lips rather than the tongue, like the English letter B. To get back to Tlingit and its phonology, it has no labial sounds other than the sound of M. Mm. This particular sound is used in almost 95% of all spoken languages, like the English letter M. So it's not surprising that Tlingit uses it. However, there is no sound for P, B, F, or V in Tlingit. And Tlingit has sounds that Indo-European languages do not, and these are called ejectives. Ejectives are consonants that are voiceless, but pronounced with a glottalic aggressive push of air. Uh, voiceless means you're not using your vocal cords. So for example, instead of a voiceless velar sound like uh, you add what sounds like a glottal stop as well. Uh. Ejectives are used in roughly 20% of spoken languages worldwide, and they can be found in other indigenous language families of the Americas, like Athabascan, Siouan, Salishan, Mayan, Aymaran, Quechuan, and Chonan. The Athabascan languages are 43 spoken languages strong, and they range from Koyukon in the northern parts of Alaska to Chippewan in the north central parts of Canada, from parts of the Pacific Northwest in Oregon and Northern California, as well as the southwestern deserts of Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. Now, how and why these languages of the same family are spread out over such a vast geographic area is unknown. And there's a significant gap of land between the Northern Athabascan languages in North Canada and Alaska and the Southern Athabascan languages of New Mexico or Arizona. And that's not a language desert in between either. It's actually inhabited by many of the Uto-Aztecan languages, which is a completely different family. One of the most well-known Athabascan languages spoken today is Navajo. There are over 170,000 speakers of Navajo, but it is still considered a vulnerable language, which does make it endangered. 
Navajo as a language has very few loan words, and these are words taken from other languages. And this is due to its development isolated from other languages, but also its complex morphology. Can you guess what's coming next? <laughs> a brief interlude on morphology. <laughs> well, it's quite simply the study of words, but more specifically how words are formed and their relation to other words in the same language. So for example, you're studying the roots of words, prefixes, parts of speech, and even intonation. In English, the famous buffalo sentence is a great exercise in morphology. <laughs> in Navajo, <laughs> Uh, nouns are not needed to complete a sentence. It's actually the verbs that carry the bulk of information when speaking. And this is true for many indigenous languages, actually. The Navajo language relies heavily on affixes, and they're not used in a typical prefix or suffix way. Verbs can contain more meaningful units of speech than nouns through the use of these affixes. Uh, and verbs don't adhere to tenses necessarily, but there are inherent aspects to a verb. Uh, an aspect, it expresses how an action or event extends over time. So an example in English would be the difference between I helped him and I was helping him. So you can imagine I helped him being continuous over time, but in the past versus I was helping him. It expresses a past act that has ended. In Navajo, there are 12 aspects available to a verb, and there are also seven modes a verb can be conjugated by, including imperfective, perfective, progressive, iterative, usitative, future, and optative. The imperfective is for incomplete activities. The perfective is in the past and future tenses only for completed tasks. The progressive is for actions that are ongoing, the iterative for events that are repeated. The future tense is self-explanatory. <laughs> it only happens in the future. And usitative mode is for actions that happen customarily, but not always. Uh, and the optative mode is uh, for potential actions that the speaker wishes for. So there's quite a lot to use here, but let's get some examples so that you don't fall asleep on me. Uh, let's use the English verb to play. In Navajo, it can be seen in its various verb forms as follows. So there's the first person singular imperfective, or in English, I am playing. In Navajo, it is na'ashne. There's the first person plural imperfective, in English, we are playing. In Navajo is ne'ine. So the suffix of ne is the same for both, and that's expressing the imperfective mode of the verb. But the affix after the starting syllable expresses the singular versus the plural. So the ash versus e. Like other languages, Navajo has the first person, I or we, the second person, you, the third person, he, she, it, they, and the fourth person as well. And for an English speaker, this is like saying one is playing. Navajo is a very verb heavy language as we're learning <laughs> and verbs have further classifications than the ones we've covered so far. A verb can express motion as well, of course, as in is the object in motion due to continuous physical contact because you're handling the object. So these would be verbs like to carry, to bring, to lower. And there's also is the object in motion due to being propelled like the verbs to throw or to drop. And there's also uh, is the object in motion due to free flight? 
<laughs> so these are verbs like to fly or to fall. And verbs can also include what are called handles, simply based on the shape of an object. And handles are affixes like a, specifically for solid round objects like apples or coins, versus ja'a, specifically for a plural of small objects like seeds. And there are a further eight shape classifications that can be used as handles in verbs. <laughs> so we are just brushing the surface on how deeply complex and beautifully succinct Navajo is as a language. As I said before, the Athabascan languages are separated geographically, north versus south, and in between are some of the Uto-Aztecan languages, like Northern Paiute, Shoshone, Hopi, and Comanche. And these languages are spoken in modern day states like Nevada, Utah, and Arizona. Down the western edge of modern day Mexico, excluding the Baja Peninsula, are about six or seven language groups like Opata, Yaqui, Mayo, and Oodham. The most southerly Uto Aztecan language spoken in Mexico is Nahuatl. And this was the language of the Aztec or Mexica people. The ancient city of Tenochtitlan is the most famous of this culture, and there are many modern English words loaned from Mexico, but they're actually Nahuatl words, like avocado, coyote, chili, chocolate, tomato, and the fun one, axolotl. <laughs> now, one of the markers of Nahuatl, among many, is its use of reduplication. Uh, many languages do this, and this is when the first syllable of a root word forms a new word entirely. So when you use it in nouns, it will pluralize the noun, but it can also form a diminutive or a derivation as well. When used in verbs, it will express a repetitive action. So for example, wetsi, the Nahuatl word for he, she falls, becomes wetsi, he, she falls several times. And Nahuatl also uses glottal stops in a specific manner. They're called saltillo. It's a Spanish word, but you remember the glottal stop from Tlingit to create ejective sounds? Well, in Nahuatl, the glottal stop is not an ejective, but it's a full phoneme in its own right. So an example in British English would be the word butter. But in some colloquial uh, distinctions, you say ba'a. I'm not actually saying t, ba'a. I'm just stopping air from going from my throat through my mouth. So in Nahuatl, to carry on the example in reduplication as well, there's wetsi, and to create the third person plural, the verb becomes wet wetsi, they fall, many people fall. And there's a glottal stop, which I don't do very well, <laughs> which distinguishes it from he or she falls several times. So you do have to listen for the nuance. We are blessed to have literature and significant amounts of written language in Nahuatl, uh, which does make it unique among indigenous American languages. The literature encompasses a diverse array of genres and styles, and the documents themselves are composed under many different circumstances. So pre-conquest Nahuatl has a distinction between tlatoli, which is speech, and kuikatl, which is song. So this is the distinction like prose versus poetry. And one of the most important works of prose written in Nahuatl is the 12 volume compilation generally known as the Florentine Codex. Uh, its volumes cover a diverse range of topics, Aztec history, social organization, material culture, 
religious and ceremonial life, even rhetorical style. And the 12th volume provides also an indigenous perspective on the Spanish conquests. Aztec poetry makes rich use of metaphoric imagery and themes, lamentations of the brevity of human existence, the celebration of valiant warriors who die in battle, and the appreciation of the beauty of life. Now, it is true that indigenous languages and peoples were eventually decimated uh, in many parts through interactions with colonial powers like the Spanish, French, or English. But it is also these early interactions that can provide priceless historical accounts of sometimes some cross-cultural learnings. Now, some of them are violent incidents and others are less violent, at least at first. Indigenous North American language families like Iroquoian, Siouan, and Algonquin have also made their mark on the colonial powers who then stepped foot in their territory, traded with them, and eventually pretty much conquered them. Iroquoian languages are ones like Mohawk, Huron, and Cherokee. The Mohawk people were part of the Iroquois Confederacy, or the Haudenosaunee. They lived on the eastern edge of the Confederacy's area, and they were the gatekeepers for any invasions from the east. Uh, but the Mohawk actually don't call themselves Mohawk, they call themselves Kanian Kehaka, or people of the flint, and that's because they became wealthy through trading flint. And they had a history of raiding and conquering other tribes in the region, like their Algonquin-speaking neighbors, the Mohicans. <laughs> um, in 1609, actually, when a band of Hurons led Samuel de Champlain and his crew into Mohawk country, uh, an impromptu skirmish unfolded. And both sides were shocked by the presence of the other. Champlain and other Frenchmen were astounded by how the Mohawk dressed and carried themselves. Uh, the Mohawk had never seen metal helmets and body armor before. Uh, during the skirmish, Champlain and his men killed three Mohawk chiefs, and the Mohawk eventually had to retreat due to their lack of knowledge in fighting such a foe. And it was this actual one moment that sparked the Beaver Wars. And I'll, I'll let you look that one up on Wikipedia <laughs> yourself. <laughs> uh, for the Cherokee, uh, the first known European contact was with the Spanish. Hernando de Soto was leading an expedition in May of 1540. And since they were on a mission that kept them on a march, the Cherokee saw them as simply passing through the various villages in their land. So like other peoples that we know now, uh, the Cherokee were victims of the new infectious diseases that the Spanish brought with them. Many villages were impacted, many people died, but the Cherokee defended their lands against the Spanish initially. The Spanish had thought of trying to conquer and settle those lands, but they could not really withstand the fight on lands that were so far from the coast and so far inland. Now this is Southern Appalachia. So the Cherokee were well able to defend their lands due to the geography of the land itself. They were a very powerful tribe and they were seen by Europeans as excellent to trade with, but to be cautious and keep them on their good side because they were also fierce warriors. <laughs> uh, Let's move to the Sioux people of Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, and Nebraska. Um, they are distinguished by speaking two branches of the same language, Lakota and Dakota. The Sioux were actually pushed west of the Great Lakes by Iroquoian tribes. The Lakota people are where the stereotypical image and language, for lack of a better word, of the quote, American Indian actually come from. Uh, so Sitting Bull, 
wore his hair in two braids and had earned the honor of wearing eagle feathers. He was a holy man and a tribal warrior. And Lakota greeting phrases like haokola were simplified into anglicized words like how. You know, the Indian with two braids, hand raised uh, as an, in a salute and saying how. Ugh, yuck. But ironically, <laughs> the word how in Lakota is the only word in that language to use a diphthong, which means it may have been loaned from a different indigenous language altogether. What's a diphthong? <laughs> Good question. Uh, a diphthong is when two vowels come together to make a new sound. So in that word example, how, you have a and u. How. Uh, there's also the Kevin Costner movie, Dances with Wolves, from 1990. And this was a screenplay that won an Oscar, but written heavily in Lakota. And that's because the main character of the movie assimilates into Siouan culture. However, the reception from indigenous people was mixed. There were some who praised the movie for highlighting Siouan culture and language in a different way than previous Westerns from Hollywood, but others criticized the authenticity of the Lakota language used in the film. Uh, a Blackfeet filmmaker once said, I want to say how nice, but no matter how sensitive and wonderful this movie is, you have to ask who's telling the story, and it's certainly not an Indian. One interesting linguistic fact of Lakota is that it uses postpositions as opposed to prepositions like at or in or around. In Lakota, the postpositions L and ekta are synonyms of each other, but you use them in different occasions. So semantically, they're used as locational and directional tools. What are semantics? Another great question. <laughs> Semantics is the part of linguistics concerned with meaning. In the case of the two postpositions in Lakota, um, these are pointers for when to use L and when to use ekta, and it can be determined by the concepts of motion or location and space versus time. So, for example, uh, if you want to express something motionless, but in a specific place. So for example, in English, you would say in the house, right? In the house is stationary and in a specific place. So that would be tipikinjel. So this is describing a location of an object not moving. But if you want to describe a specific space, but inferring movement, so not in the house, but to the house, right? You're moving towards the house you would say tipikinjekta. So this is referring to the movement of something. It's directional in nature. Uh, by contrast, if you want to say something is taking place during a static moment in time, uh, but not moving, so in the winter, for example, you might say waniyatukinjel. And uh, the, that means it's happening during winter, but it's one moment in winter. Now, let's say you want to describe the movement of the seasons. It's becoming winter. It's moving towards winter. It's a specific time period, winter, but there's movement. So you would say, uh, because it's soon changing to the, to the next season. I probably butchered those phrases in Lakota, and I apologize. 
Lakota also uses demonstratives, which distinguishes the distance from the speaker. And there are nine demonstratives establishing being near to the speaker, near to the listener, or away from both the speaker or the listener. And those are also expressed in the singular, dual, and plural forms. So that's one person versus two people versus many people. The North American language family that probably takes up the largest geographical area is Algonquin. Languages in this family are Cree, Ojibwe, Blackfoot, Cheyenne, Arapaho, Shawnee, Miami, Illinois, Menominee, Fox, Potawatomi, Mi'kmaq, Abenaki, Mohican, Delaware, Powhatan, Massachusetts, and several others in very small regions of the Northeast. That's a lot of languages. <laughs> These languages are all considered polysynthetic, and that means they contain complex verb structures, which makes for longer words. Uh, these are long words that feel like their own sentences. And this is very common with indigenous languages, that one word can contain multitudes. Now, what's fun about Algonquin is that their nouns make the distinction between animate and inanimate objects. And nouns can also be contrasted between proximate and obviative. So a proximate noun is central and important to the discourse taking place while obviative nouns are less important to what you're talking about. So it's providing much greater context to a conversation. And it gets even more linguistically fun from there because <laughs> Algonquin languages also have a hierarchical morphosyntatic alignment. Now, that was a bunch of jargony mouthful, but um, long story short, <laughs> it means that there's a use of a voice where the subject of a sentence outranks the object uh, but there's also an opposing voice, which creates the opposite effect. So again, just creating even more context within one polysynthetic, big complex verb structure <laughs> or noun structure. Uh, there are many words still used in English today that are loan words from Algonquin languages. Um, so the word caucus, uh, this could be from the Algonquin word for council or the Algonquin word for orator. Uh, there's also the words chipmunk. Hickory, moose, pecan, raccoon, skunk, toboggan, totem, and oddly enough, the word Eskimo. <laughs> Eskimo is actually a word taken from a Cree dialect uh, to refer to the Mi'kmaq tribe, and it meant snowshoe netter. Uh, now, Cree is actually interesting. It's a dialect continuum rather than one language. And if we want to talk about how it's written, uh, English uses an alphabet, but Cree uses a syllabary. And a syllabary means that it uses symbols to represent syllables. So each symbol represents a consonant in Cree, but it can be written in four directions. And the direction that the symbol takes corresponds to the vowel that accompanies the consonant, which then creates the syllable. Uh, as with many other indigenous languages, there are also diacritics, which are needed to distinguish the various syllables when they're used grammatically. Diacritics are like the little um, hashtag or uh, not hashtag, uh, the little um, accent marks or dashes or the uh, little markings above the letters themselves. The Cree syllabary uh, has also not traditionally used punctuation like the period. <laughs> Traditionally, there was just more space between the end of one sentence and the beginning of another. 
Cree is also a main component language in what are called contact languages. And these are either Creole or Pidgin languages, like Michif. Uh, Michif is a combination of a Cree dialect and French. Uh, Michif uses Cree verbs, question words, demonstratives, but it's also using French nouns. There's also Bungi, and Bungi is a contact language uh, mix of Scots, Gaelic, Ojibwe, and Cree. One of the most elusive indigenous languages of the Americas uh, that's big enough for us to study is the Eskalut language family tree, and that's including Alut, Yupik, and Inuit uh, languages. And these are languages geographically in North America, but linguistically, they are much more strongly related to Siberian or other Asian languages. And this means that they may have been the most recent of indigenous people to have crossed over onto the American continent. Uh, notable features of Eskalut languages are that they have relatively few root words uh, and that they use multiple voiceless phonemes, including voiceless nasals. So to start with the root words, when I say that Eskalut has relatively few root words, I mean that there are only roughly 2,000 root words for the language to create from. These are head words, uh, the starting point of a word. Um, but these root words are then added to with the use of post bases. And post bases are kind of like suffixes, sort of. Uh, so this explains the stereotypical comment about these languages, the Eskalut languages, having many words for snow. It's not really that they have multiple words for snow, they don't have many root words for snow, but they utilize those root words alongside post bases to expand on the root word itself, but it becomes its own new word. Uh, also back to the voiceless phonemes. Uh, its use of voiceless phonemes is sadly one that I cannot replicate very well in the podcast medium. Um, not without speaking really long phrases of uh, Eskalut languages, and I would very, very much butcher that, so I won't do that. Um, but remember that phonemes are just sounds, and voiceless means that you're not using your vocal cords. So for example, a voiced labial would be like the English letter B, but a voiceless labial would be like the English letter P. Eskalut languages use voiceless plosives, fricatives, and nasals. Voiceless plosives are commonplace, like the one I just gave for the English letter P. Voiceless fricatives are also pretty common, and that's like the English letter S. But voiceless nasals are not very common. You can count on two hands the number of languages globally that use voiceless nasals, and Yupik is one of them. So is Icelandic, Burmese, and Welsh, to name only a couple. A voiced nasal is very common. It's that most common sound among all languages, like the English letter M. But that's voiced, meaning you're using your vocal cords. So a voiceless nasal means that you block off using your vocal cords and you simply push the air through your nasal cavity instead. Voiceless nasals are always in conjunction with other phonemes, so it creates more of a stop than anything else. Okay, are you still with me? <laughs> we haven't even gotten to Central and South America. There's so many more linguistic bits to celebrate. <laughs> there are something like 185 languages spoken in Central America and more than 500 languages spoken in South America. Many language families in Central and South America are isolated and endangered or in fact extinct. Many languages do not belong to a bigger language family 
but I think that's rather more that there's research and study that needs to be done before they can really be linked together or seen as belonging to the same family. And this is the downside of languages becoming extinct or endangered. When there are only so many living speakers of a language, it starts to die. One of the larger language families in Central America is Otomanguian. These languages are spoken in Central Mexico, like the regions of Oaxaca and Chiapas, uh, as well as Honduras and Nicaragua. And one very differentiating linguistic feature is the use of whistling language. Other languages around the world do use whistle speech, but not as pervasively as in Otomanguian. Whistle speech in these languages stems from them being tonal languages. And you may have heard of tonal languages before. Some of the most widely spoken languages in the world are tonal, Mandarin, Cantonese, Thai, Vietnamese, uh, but also Punjabi, Yoruba, and Igbo. Uh, so many Otomanguian languages lack labial consonants like Tlingit. There are very few B or F sounds, um, but their tone system, however, provides a much greater level of complexity. So in tonal languages, there are register tones and contour tones, and you can also use the pitch of a tone to differentiate. Uh, so a five level tone language will simply have five tone registers from one, two, three, four, five, like that, going from low to high. Now you might say that the phoneme cha uh, in these five different registers, and that will convey a completely different word with each register. So the Chinantec language, which is Otomanguian, has this kind of five tone system, uh, but tone systems can also use multiple registers plus contour tones. So an example of this type of mixed tone system is in the Trike language. In Trike, there are three register tones and five contour tones. So you have high, mid, low as registers, but you also have high, mid, mid, low as contour tones, as well as low, high, high, higher, and higher, highest, which I, <laughs> I'm reaching my upper limits there. Um, so tonal languages can also use a tone on a stressed syllable. Uh, so it's not on every syllable that you use a tone. Some languages put the stressed syllable at the front of a word, others on the second syllable. So a difference of garage versus garage to be American and British at the same time. Um, whistled speech to get back there means that you're not using actual phonemes. You're not saying cha or ga. You're just using the varying tones of those word combos and phrases in the tones themselves. The information can be transmitted much further this way due to how sound travels. Uh, so if you need to talk to somebody really quickly, <laughs> you can whistle it and it carries a long distance. And in central Mexico, there are high elevations, but also volcanic valleys. Um, so this type of speech comes in especially handy. Um, also culturally, whistled speech in Otomanguian languages is very important. Men don't shout, but they do whistle. Uh, and that's because it's considered very rude to shout. But whistling can convey whole paragraphs of information without being rude or offensive. And they're still culturally speaking, but they're still talking to someone else over a longer distance. Uh, and traditionally, it was the men who used whistle speech and not the women, which is also another example of how language is inherent to the culture itself. Another language family that includes multiple languages in Central America is Chipchan. 
Now, these languages are spoken in the countries of Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Panama, and Northern Colombia. One of the languages spoken in Panama and Costa Rica is Guaymi. Now, this language also involves cultural norms in its use of language, specifically long silences and vague speech is very common. It's in fact considered rude to not allow the person you're speaking with enough time to respond. So considering your words before speaking them is just as important as the words themselves. Now, while Chipchan languages do not use whistled speech, they do greet each other with the use of a grito. Now, a grito is a cry or a shout where the first sound you make is held the longest and then you follow that with trills or modulations. It's very common in Mexico and Central America. The Chipchan language of Kogi is only spoken in a very remote section of Northern Colombia. And this one's interesting because the Kogi people are the only known unconquered Andean civilization in the Americas. Uh, there are only just under 10,000 speakers of Kogi today. Um, as a language, it's fairly simple. Kogi has seven different vowel sounds. Um, it also uses labials, alveolars, palatals, velars, and glottals for its consonants. So you have sounds like p, t, k, and their voiced siblings, b, d, g. Um, those are the plosives. Uh, the fricative sounds are s, sh, ch, h. So the s, sh, x, and h, uh, and their voiced siblings of z and j. Uh, and you also have the sounds of the letter, English letter L, N, M, W, and J. Um, obviously not said as W, but W. <laughs> um, Kogi is not a tonal language as such, um, but the people in their culture are the only known pre-Columbian civilization to still exist without interruption, without colonization. And they live in the Sierra Nevada de Santa Maria uh, mountain range, and they are descendants of the Tairona people. Now the Tairona were an advanced civilization. They built stone walls and buildings. Uh, they uh, created gold jewelry and other gold objects to hang from trees. Um, but the Tairona were forced into the highlands of that area when the Caribe people arrived around 1000 CE. Um, but this was to their advantage <laughs> because when the Spanish arrived 500 years later, the mountaintops were kind of hard to get to. <laughs> their lifestyle and belief system centers around mother earth with humans being her children. Uh, they do not regard their leaders as shamans, but rather mamos, which is the word for son in the Kogi language. Uh, it's more centered around guidance and leadership rather than uh, medicinal healings and things like that. Um, and the Kogi have distinct roles for men and women. So the women are the ones who pick the cotton and make the fibers, but the men are the ones to use the fibers to weave the cloth. Uh, there's also a very strong custom for the men of the tribe to chew coca leaves. Uh, farmland and livestock is passed from mother to daughter as well as father to son. And marriages are mostly arranged, but never forced. Uh, family names are matrilineal. And essentially the villages in these mountains produce enough for what the community needs. So there is little to no need for contact with the outside world. And in fact, they've only contacted the outside world twice in their entire history. Another large language family with many of the languages being isolated from the outside world, like the Kogi, is the Tupian family. There are roughly 70 Tupian languages ranging from Southern Colombia to Northern Argentina. 
The bulk of Tupian languages are in Brazil, Bolivia, Paraguay, and Uruguay. When the Portuguese first arrived in Brazil, they noticed the indigenous people up and down the river systems were speaking similar languages. The most well-known of these was Old Tupi, but Old Tupi did not resist the influence of Portuguese as well as other Tupian languages like Guarani. In neighboring Spanish colonies, Paraguay and Bolivia, Guarani resisted the influence of Spanish and guarded itself linguistically, not entirely, but very much so. Currently, half the rural population of Paraguay still speaks Guarani, and they are monolingual, which means they do not also speak Spanish. One of the distinguishing markers of Guarani is its nasal harmony. And yep, I'm speaking again of phonology. <laughs> so syllables used in Guarani are usually a consonant plus a vowel, or maybe just a vowel on its own. A nasal syllable will use a nasal vowel, and if the consonant in the syllable is voiced using your vocal cords, it will take on the nasal allophone. Now what's an allophone? That's a great question. <laughs> an allophone is one of multiple possible sounds to produce a phoneme. So for example, in Spanish, you have the letter D, the D sound, and it differs between the words like dolor and nada. You say that uh, sound differently. So that's an allophone because it's the same D sound. But in another language like English, we would create two different phonemes altogether. We have the letter D as well as the phoneme of TH. Either way, this flexibility of the phonology makes Guarani much easier to speak, but specifically when it comes to using nasal vowels and consonants. As for its morphology, Guarani has a fun way of using tenses in nouns. Nouns use the nominal tense, which is the past and the future, but these two forms of the noun can also be combined. When you use the past on a noun, it's a bit like saying X or former. So as an example of this mixed past future noun tense, you can say that someone studied to be a priest but never became one. So for example, in English, you would say the X future priest, <laughs> but it's just one, one word <laughs> in Guarani. <laughs> uh, verbs also have some fun by using negation instead of separate words to indicate a negative. Uh, as with the French language, Guarani uses a circumfix to express negation. So in French, the example would be je ne sais pas. The use of ne and pas around the verb expresses negation. Guarani is similar, but the verb itself is transformed to add this circumfix in. So you have ajapo versus ndajapoi. That's I make versus I don't make. Guarani words like jaguar, piranha, taper, asai, and jacaranda are used in English, but there are Spanish words that are used in Guarani, which is an element of their interactions with the Spanish. Words for things the locals would have used often and probably traded with the Spanish initially, like queso, vaca, azúcar, canela, and cilantro. Sadly, the Guarani were victims of colonization in the worst ways. They were murdered in droves, and they were often stolen for the purposes of slavery. Sao Paulo was a large slave market for the Americas, 
and the Guarani had their traditional bow and arrow as weapon weaponry, but the Portuguese and Spanish had gunpowder weapons. There was also the heavy hand of the Catholic Church, which extended into the reaches of remote villages to build missions. The Guarani actually survived all of this, as did their cherished language, but it was a very hard won battle. Now, on the other side of South America, literally the other side of the Andes mountain range, <laughs> are the Quechuan languages. There are 46 languages in this family, including Hanan, Huaca, Yorin, and Ancashwamali. Uh, this is another example of a dialect continuum rather than sharp language boundaries. So all of those languages I just mentioned are actually Quechuan. And they range from Ecuador, down through Peru, into southern Bolivia, and to the very northern parts of Argentina. Quechua is very widely spoken, and it was the language of the Incan Empire. Now, when the Spanish first came, they actively encouraged the use of Quechua, which is a big part of why we have such a rich written and spoken history of the language. Now, as you might be expecting, Quechua has borrowed a large number of vocabulary words from Spanish, <laughs> and a large number of Quechua words have entered into English via Spanish, like guano, condor, jerky, llama, poncho, coca, puma, quinine, and quinoa. In Quechuan, phonologically, there are only three vowel phonemes and no diphthongs. And also the stress is put on the penultimate syllable. Morphologically, there's a heavy use of suffixes to change the overall meaning of a word. Interestingly, the language features bipersonal conjugation of verbs, evidentiality, and also topic particles. So to the first two, Bipersonal conjugation means that the verb agrees with both the subject and object. So the English sentence of we love wine starts with the subject, we, and the verb love conjugates according to that subject. But if we reversed the sentence and used wine as the subject, the verb would conjugate differently. Wine loves us. In Quechuan, the verb would have to conjugate in agreement with both the subject and the object. It's pretty cool. The second thing, evidentiality, it refers to a morpheme that indicates the source of information. Quechuan uses three morphemes to mark evidentiality, mi, tra, and she. The first one marks direct evidence. The second one marks inferred evidence or conjecture. And the third marks hearsay or reported evidence. So these morphemes are used like suffixes to express sentences like nyawi iwan milikala a, which translates directly to eyes, I with C. But because of the me marker of evidentiality, it means I saw with my own eyes. Using the second morpheme would be like saying, I think they will come back. You're implying, you're inferring. Using the third morpheme would make a sentence like, I was told she borrowed it. But obviously in these English examples, I'm using words like I think, or I was told, instead of the evidentiality morpheme that Quechuan uses. However, evidential morphemes are not universally used in all situations and are often omitted. The overuse of evidential morphemes is a sign that the speaker lacks competence, either because they are not a native speaker 
or are, in very rare instances, mentally ill. Use of evidential morphemes is linked to the culture as well. It's implied that a speaker who uses evidential morphemes effectively can be trusted, whereas those who don't abide by these customs are not to be trusted. So culturally, you want to assume responsibility through use of evidential morphemes only when you are certain and it is safe to do so. And if you do this repeatedly, it builds your stature in a community. To geographically jump to a completely different area of South America and chat about one fun linguistic oddity, we head to the Caribbean language family. These languages are spoken in countries like Venezuela, Guyana, Suriname, and French Guiana. Small callback to the Kogi people from earlier. Um, the Caribbean, these are the people who pushed them into the highlands of Colombia. And there is one Caribbean language, Hixkariana, that is linguistically odd. This language has a default word order of object, verb, subject. And this can sometimes lead to translations using what we call the passive voice in English. So an example sentence of Toto Yonoye Kamara can be directly translated as man ate jaguar. The passive voice English sentence would be the man got eaten by the jaguar. However, the word order of man ate jaguar in English would really be the jaguar ate the man. And don't, don't get me wrong, Caribbean languages are not to be confused with Caribbean languages. No, no, the languages of the Caribbean are Arawakan languages. Uh, and a large majority of them are now extinct. And one of those extinct languages is Taino. It was one of the most widely spoken languages in the Caribbean, but within a hundred years of European contact, it became extinct. It was, however, the first indigenous language ever heard by Europeans. And there were multiple words borrowed into English, French, Spanish, etc. The English words of barbecue, canoe, guava, hammock, hurricane, iguana, manatee, maroon, savanna, and tobacco are originally from Taino. And there are many place names that are Taino in origin as well. The Bahamas, Caicos, Cayman, Cuba, Haiti, Boriquen, and Jamaica. Whew. With so many indigenous languages of the Americas, it was really difficult to trim this episode down. All extinct, endangered, and vulnerable languages need to be studied and cherished. Language develops as people develop, so it's a rich source of information for understanding people. What better way to celebrate and respect the people who were here first than to learn their languages. But that was the very fun, at least for me, and ridiculously linguistic deep dive into the trivia question. How many languages are indigenous to the Americas? <laughs> Stay tuned for a very brief intro to the indigenous language of the people on whose land I currently live. I acknowledge that I currently live on the land of the Cayuse, Umatilla, and Walla Walla. Their shared language is Upper Chinook, which sadly became extinct in 2012 with the death of its last known living speaker, Gladys Thompson. 
The Endangered Language Archive has audio and video files of Upper Chinook, or Kixt, being spoken. There are several dialects of Kixt, Multnomah, Watlala, Wasco Rishwam, and Clackamas. There were Lower and Upper Chinookan groups. The Lower and Upper distinctions were based on how far east or west the people lived along the Columbia River. Lower Chinook was spoken at the mouth of the Columbia River, and Upper Chinook was spoken where current-day Portland and Hood River are, which is closer to Mount Hood. They were not a large tribe and were immediately and deeply impacted by European contact, specifically by the diseases they brought. You can look up your American history, starting with Lewis and Clark. However, a pidgin trade language known as Chinook jargon still lives on today, although still critically endangered. It developed in the late 18th century and broadened its base of speakers throughout the Pacific Northwest. Much of its vocabulary is based in Chinook, but 15% of it stems from French, and there are also English loanwords used. The language uses glottal stops, ejectives, aspirated consonants, diphthongs, as well as labial, velar, alveolar, and uvular phonemes. The language experienced a revitalization in Grand Ronde, Oregon in the late 1990s. In 2001, the tribe started an immersion preschool with funding from the Administrative for Native Americans. A kindergarten was started in 2004, classes at the high school level began in 2011, and Lane Community College currently offers a two-year course of Chinookwawa. There are several Chinook words used by English speakers. Chuck, which means water, and it can be seen in the name Kolchuk Glacier. Makamuk, which means plenty of food, but is often used to regard an important person in the community, a muckety-muck. Potlatch, this is a ceremony of exchanging gifts and sharing food, and it's akin to the word use of potluck dinner. Skukum, which means strong or able or big, and it can often be used as an affirmative reply, like the phrases, he's a skukum guy, or yeah, that's skukum. Also the word tilikum, which means family or people. Place names like Alkai Beach derive from Chinook, Alkai means the future. Oddly enough, you'll also find place names like Boston all over the Pacific Northwest. And that's Chinook jargon meaning American as opposed to British. The word Chinook itself means the wind and is often used in place names. There are multiple place names using the word Lolo, which means to carry. Also, the word Moich is used in multiple locations and this word means deer or deer meadow. The word Siwash is very common even up into British Columbia and that's because this word means Native American man. You can also put two jargon words together, skokumchuk, which means big water or strong water. Many a creek or river in the Pacific Northwest is named that. I will say it's been a fun endeavor to create these podcast episodes for myself and for whoever is listening. Not Trivial will be back after a hiatus with season two. There's more trivia to dig into, more history and language to unearth, more stories to tell. 
please subscribe and listen wherever you find podcasts. Oh, and thank you very much for listening. <laughs>